0: Good morning, good morning, everybody. Welcome back again. My name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor here at Simple Church. I want us to, uh, first of all, greet all of our first-time guests. If you are our first-time guests here, we are so excited that you're here with us today. Come on, guys. Can we give our first-time guests a round of applause and thank them for being here today? Now, we uh, this weekend, of course, is our first weekend of two services, and uh, and so uh, we're, we're going to be divided for a little bit, but amen. We're provided room for God to bring in more people, and we recently just sent out these. These are... Our postcards of, of you're invited, we sent over 5,000 of these out this past week, and uh, if you came today and you brought yourself one of those, thank you very much for coming. We're so happy that you're here. Uh, one other big thing that I want, I want to just toss out there before we jump in today's message, there's a huge event coming up that uh, Simple Church and the Lions Club got together, and we said, you know, there's nothing happening in Reynoldsburg here uh, during the winter season there's just very little going on and we wanted to fix that so we decided to put on a talent show and that show is called Reynoldsburg's Got Talent there's a website by the same name if you want some more information but uh, we, we put this together and so we've had over 28 registrations people that are going to be in this show and from comedians to dancing and all kinds of stuff talent represented from all over the city outside of the city as well and that is going to be February 28th I know it's a Good bit of a, of, of amount of time in, in advance warning here, but we just wanted to let you know so you mark your calendars and you can plan to join us and uh, we'll be selling tickets for it very, very soon. So. Okay, we are in the middle of a series called uh, All About Daniel, and we are studying the book of Daniel. And so if you're following along in your Bible today, we are going chapter by chapter. We're going to be in chapter 4. Now, if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. If you would just put your hand in the air, one of our service hosts will make sure that you have a Bible. We we think that's an important tool for you to have for, for life, so we want to make sure that you've got one. So our service hosts will get those to you. But we are studying Daniel and learning some interesting principle, and it's it, it's an interesting book because Daniel is one of those books that is a prophetic book, and essentially a prophetic book. There there are history books, there are, are, are poetry books in the Old Testament, and then there are these prophetic books, and Daniel's kind of nestled right in the middle of them and uh and prophecy is given to us it kind of warns us about things that are coming in the future so that we as as followers of christ can be aware that they're coming we can know the times we can say we need to get ready we we can see these things happening and we can know that they're they're coming because the bible says it in the prophecy okay so we look in in daniel and we see that and uh, however half the book of daniel though is historical and so the first six i want to say the first six chapters our history of Daniel, or rather his story of, uh, his exile, because the Babylons came in, or Babylonians came in, and they, they captured Israel and led them all off into I- exile, and, uh, and that's part of, of Daniel's story. And Daniel's story gives us much to learn from, because Daniel lived in a day and an age and a culture that is similar to our culture today, so, so we can, we can glean a lot from his life. And, and essentially what's happened again, Daniel and his friends have been taken from their homeland into Babylon to become slaves, and now the pressure from that culture is on them to not uphold God's standards, but to live in a way that is contrary to the way that they, were, that they were raised to do. And so I would say the same thing, of course, is happening today. That's why I think this book is relevant to us, because we're living in a world where the culture is pressing us to not embrace biblical values and to live however we want. And the question that we have to wrestle is, is how do we live a righteous life in a world that has gone crazy? How do we live a righteous life in a world that has gone crazy? And Daniel gives us some powerful answers to that. So last week we talked about culture's greatest test, which we we discovered is over our worship. It's the way time began with the the struggle uh, over worship, and it's also the way that time here on this earth will end. It's also a struggle over worship. And so today we're going to talk about what I believe to be culture's greatest sin, and, uh, as we study through chapter four, and, uh, let me tell you what's happening here. This is, we're gonna talk a little bit about King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was the, the king of the Babylons. He was the one who came in and took over Israel. And, uh, and so Nebuchadnezzar had to learn a very, le- a very valuable lesson about the greatest sin that we're gonna talk about today. And I believe that he embraced an attitude that is, that is in our culture, and that is the sin of pride. It's the sin of pride, and the reason why I'd say that pride is the greatest sin is because at the root of every single sin, if you go back to its to its beginning, to to where it all started, you will find pride. Now, some of you would would say, "No, I don't, I don't think so." But if you think about it, it's true because, and again, I, I feel the pushback. You say adultery is the greatest sin, or murder is the greatest sin, or lying or stealing. You you all have an idea of what the greatest sin is, but I think it's pride, and and, and the reason I think so is because it all begins there. See, you say. In your heart, you elevate yourself and you say, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to do it my way, and that is pride. You exalt your ways above God's ways, above his plan for your life. And so you say, I'm going to create my own moral compass. I'm going to decide for myself what I will follow and what I will not. And that attitude leads us to every other sin that we find ourselves in, pride. It starts with pride. And I believe that's something that our culture is suffering from today. Because as you look across our nation, you hear things like, well, we move moved past those values. And aren't we so progressive? Aren't we so tolerant? We've become enlightened, right? And really, our culture is just saying to God that we have progressed beyond you. You know, the Bible was written to a culture thousands of years ago that didn't understand how intelligent we were. They don't understand what we understand today and how far we've come. And so we excuse God from the public scene. We have said, we don't want your rules anymore. We don't want you to tell us how to live. We have progressed beyond that. And it's the sin of pride and the danger as a result of it is coming. I promise you, church. And so Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the lesson of pride. And, uh, and what's interesting is, is that so far in our reading, we've been reading from Daniel's voice. We've been reading Daniel's story. But, but this next part in chapter 4 that we're going to read is, is actually Nebuchadnezzar's voice. This is a message that he gave and sent out. And Daniel found it so valuable that he decided to include it. So when we read this, this, this next passage, this is what Nebuchadnezzar writes. So we're in Daniel 4, starting at one. Verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs? How powerful his wonders? His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. Now, I want you to stop for a second. I want you to stop for a second because you can't just read the Bible. You need to Read the Bible. In other words, read into what's happening here. Because think about who this is that is saying this. This is Nebuchadnezzar. And what do we know about Nebuchadnezzar? We know that he was a tyrant. We know that he was a slaver. We know that he was a conqueror. A guy who erected a golden statue to himself and told everyone to bow down to it. A guy who was willing to kill you if you didn't bow down to it. In fact, he threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace because they refused to obey This is not a nice guy. This is not a guy with a reputation for hospitality. Right? He's got slaves all around him. He destroyed entire cities, entire cultures, and took them hostage back to Babylon to serve him. This is not a nice guy. And he's saying, peace and prosperity to you? I don't know about you, but anybody who destroyed my home and took my children and took my wives, and he wishes me peace and prosperity, it's like, hey, I don't want anything to do with you. So we, when we read something like this, we need to go, something has shifted here in his life. Something he has encountered has altered his perspective. And so he seems very, very different. He's reaching out to everyone in the world. Notice that. To every people of every race and nation and la- language throughout the world. He's declaring his desire that they have peace and prosperity. And prosperity, he's not necessarily wishing that they would have financial prosperity, but prosperity of their soul. This is something we find akin to, to the verse that, that the disciple, uh, John the disciple wrote in 3 John. He's got the similar voice. He must have had a similar kind of encounter. And so these words flow from an encounter with the living God, and he wants everyone to know of the wonders of God, not of Nebuchadnezzar, but God's. And it's obvious that something has changed as he prays this over people whom he'd stolen from. So you have to believe this guy has this encounter with God. And at the end of chapter 3, he, did, he does have an encounter with God. Because Nebuchadnezzar threw, the, threw Shadrach, Meshach in the fiery furnace. And while they were in there, there was a, they threw three in and he sees four. They come out, they're unbound, they're unscathed, they don't smell like smoke, nothing has touched them. And Nebuchadnezzar declares to everybody, look at their God, look at what he's done. See, he has an encounter with God through other people. And he tells everybody that their God is the greatest, that everyone should worship the God of the Hebrews because of the works of his hands. So he has an encounter that leads him to believe in God so that he tells other people about God. But the problem is that he walked away from the encounter the same way. There was no change that was evident in his life. He was still full of pride, still full of sin, arrogance. Little evidence in his life that anything had shifted until this story. And the thing is, I honestly believe that that that's a lot like the church today. We have a lot of people that have experienced God in other people's lives, right? You w- sit back and you watch as people are experiencing life change through Christ, and you say, "That's amazing! That's awesome!" You guys, you need to come to church. Maybe you yourself, <coughs> maybe you even come to church yourself, but but you're not engaging in anything that's happening here. You're 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 not allowing God to transform you. And the sad reality is that in their own lives, there is no evidence of God. Being at work. They still live like the world. We embrace the moral values of the world. We spend money like the world. We get divorced as much as the world. We define marriage the same as the world. They do everything the same as the world, except they come to church on Sunday. We do everything. We we look absolutely no different than the world. And the issue is that, that they only believe in him. And this is the modern day church. They don't believe on him. There hasn't been a radical shift that has taken place in their lives. Now let me ask you something. Does anybody here enjoy a good buffet? Come on, people, wake up. Anybody here enjoy a good buffet? Thank you for your honesty. I appreciate that. It is obvious. If it's not obvious looking at me this way, let me turn this way. I enjoy a good buffet. I, I actually prefer a Chinese buffet, but I'll take Golden Corral. Back in the day, my favorite buffet was Ryan's Steakhouse. Anybody around in Reynoldsburg long enough to know the Ryan's Steakhouse? Or maybe it's in other places. It used to be here on Livingston and Bryce and. You know, I, I grew up, let me let me just reminisce for a moment, I, I of course grew up in church and uh, every Sunday if we were going to go out, we went to the Ryan Steakhouse and that was a buffet. You know, you could get steak, my dad and, and mom maybe ordered something off the entree menu, but for the rest of us kids, man, we ordered and we, we went through the salad bar and, and you know, every every buffet that I go to, you always find a couple things that are the same, right? You always go for the chicken wings. Chicken fried chicken at every every buffet is wonderful, but I like I like the wings, right? So I would just nibble on those and eat them and I'd have a plate with a Piles full of bones, man. It was my goal to get it up as high as I could. I think I got to fifty once, fifty. And and of course, <laughs> and of course, you know when you when you visit them, you, you always see the Mexican food right at the buffet. And you're like, oh, Mexican food that looks amazing. Trust me, it is not. It is not. This is a consistency across the board. It is not. Let me take take my warning, folks. Don't eat the Mexican food at the buffet. And then, of course, you go down and then you find the golden buttery biscuits. You know what I mean? All the bread you could eat. I'm a bread guy. I will eat bread until I am sick. I love it. It's wonderful. But when I was a kid, we'd go every Sunday. And, and uh, my mom kind of got hip to my patterns, right, you know, after after going there for a while. Because I would get my plate and I would go straight for the chicken wings. And I would have a pile of them. And then so she decided, she's like, okay, listen, we got to get some greens or some roughage in your life. You you need to have something a little more than French fries and chicken wings and the banana pudding, dear Lord Jesus, the banana pudding. And I don't mean just banana pudding. I mean the one with like the day old cut bananas in it. They're a little brown and vanilla wafers. You know what I'm talking about? Not vanilla wafers, vanilla wafers. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I might have a Jesus moment right here just thinking about it. My mouth is watering. Mm. I love that stuff. And my mom would say, Aaron, you, you've had enough bread. Before you get to any of that, I need you to get some greens. And so so I did. I went and got greens, and I, I got my salad. I started right, and then I, I came to some broccoli. I put some broccoli on my plate, and then, oh, they have pepperoni. And then I put pepperoni on my plate, and then I was like, well, better better stay a little healthy. I put some turkey. Oh, but they've got ham as well. We put the ham on the salad, and well, I should probably have a little more pepperoni. And so I put some more pepperoni on my plate, and then, Oh, they got bacon bits and cheese. My my salad came out looking like a meat lover's pizza. You know what I'm saying? And uh, and so, but I was eating my greens. I I ate them happily, and then I could go and get my chicken wings and my bread and things like that. And um, and so so, but the great thing about the buffet is that you could go down the line and you could pick and choose what you wanted. You could say, oh, I don't want any of that. You know, I, I I want to stay away from the the corn and the soupy yellow stuff. Like I I don't want any of that and. And I don't want any of that fried okra, but give me some more of that. You could could pick and choose. And I I think that's kind of like what Christian culture is like today, right? We're kind of picking what we like and leaving out what we don't like. And, And we need to realize that at the end, there is a price to pay for doing that. Right There's a price to pay for picking and choosing what you want to live when it comes to the Bible. And we say, well, I really like grace, but I don't, I don't want any consequences for my sin. Or I really want to be blessed, but I'm not going to give in the offering. Or I want to feel fulfilled, but I'm not going to make any sacrifices to serve. We want all these things, but we're not willing to do the things that the Bible tells us to do in order to gain them. We pick our morality, we pick how we want to define sexuality and marriage, what's right and wrong for our lifestyle choices, what drugs we will and won't take, what kind of life we will and won't live. And we feel like it's all good, that we can make our own decisions. But the reality is, we are in dangerous territory when we do this. Dangerous. And the Bible is written to warn us. It's written to warn us that a time and a culture will be this way. That we would be tempted as Christians to live that way. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. This verse in and of itself is prophetic. It is warning that there is uh, there's a time that will come. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, deceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And as you read this, you can stop and you can think and you know, oh, I know tons of unchurched people that this is applying itself to, right? I know who he's talking about people that don't know Jesus. And then Paul puts the nail in the coffin and surprises us all. And it says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. He's talking to the church. He's not talking about people that don't know Jesus. He's saying that this is us. And I'm telling you that this is American Christianity. We have a form of godliness. We know the right things to say. How to show up at the right time. We know how to put on the show on Sunday mornings. But we've really denied the power of God that radically changes every area of our lives. And instead, we just really look like the world. Now, I'm not an angry preacher. I'm not here to preach judgment. Today, what I want you to see is the whole new perspective on the consequences for sin and how it works out in our lives. That's all I want today. That I would make the case that instead of God being a judgmental God, you know, people picture him like this really big, this bully kid with a magnifying glass that is waiting for us to mess up so he can burn us, you know and uh y'all knew somebody like that when you were growing up and we we've put that image on god like ju- god is judgmental he is waiting to just destroy you with hellfire and brimstone but i believe that god put in a put in place a moral code and it is what he has defined as his best for us it's his best for us and how can we resent that how can we hate that how can we resist it it's what he's defined as our best and when we step out from his best it is sin and there are consequences to pay for that's sin. He doesn't bring judgment. We bring it on ourselves. And we choose to define life, or when we choose to define life, our own way. And yet what God does in His mercy is that He prolongs the judgment. He waits for us. He waits in hope that we will change, that we will come to Him and surrender our sin, that we will come back to Him and say, I'm going to live your way for me because it is your best for me. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. But that changes to death, the consequences for our sin. And why does he delay judgment? Because he's always warning, always sending us messages, always trying to help us so that we don't have to walk through the pain of the consequences. But God also loves us enough that if we need to walk through those, that pain, he will allow it. He will allow the pain of consequences to come. And that is essentially Nebuchadnezzar's story because here's a guy who's ruling over Babylon and he has a dream that troubles him and, and it's in the verses, but I, I don't have time to read through it all. I'm just going to summarize it for you. And he has a dream and he sees a tree that is large and prosperous and is bringing life to so many people. It's providing shelter to so many animals and, and food for so many people and, and, and producing fruit. And, so, and then suddenly something came and cut the tree down. And it was removed, but a little stump was left. Which, incidentally, that's the way God does it. If he allows us to be cut down, he will always leave a way to return. He always leaves a stump. And also in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was something about seven seasons. And so he calls everyone in the kingdom together. He can't figure out what's happened. He says, what is this dream all about? He calls his magicians, his wise men. Even Daniel gets called to the room. And he says, what does this dream mean? And nobody can tell him, but Daniel knew. And Daniel was kind of afraid to tell him because the dream, you see, was about the king. He was the great tree. He was the one who was going to be cut down and the seven seasons was seven years and he was afraid to tell the king but he stepped forward and he said, Nebuchadnezzar, I hate to lay it on you, bro, but you're it. You're that tree. You're the one that's going to be cut down. You will lose your mind. (coughs) All that you have gained will be lost. Everything will be gone. Your kingdom will be gone. Your glory will be gone. Your honor will be gone. All of it will be gone. If you don't change your heart, if you don't repent of the sin of pride, if you don't give God glory for all that you have, all of it will be gone. You need to change. If you don't recognize God for His position and all your prosperity, consequences are going to come. I told him he would be cut down for seven years, that he would act like a wild animal, that he would go insane. His nails would grow out like a bird. And this is the closest story. that. that when I read this story, I get excited because this is the closest story we ever have in the Bible to an actual werewolf. You know what I mean? Like to prove that they exist. I, I, I'm not saying he was a werewolf, but he probably looked like one with his hair all crazy and his nails all out. Living like an animal in the fields, eating the grass. He probably looked that way. And Daniel pleaded with the king to listen and to change so that he wouldn't have to go through it all. And I believe that is what God does for us too. We have messages like this one that I'm speaking on today. We have the Bible with passages that warn us about our sin. They are written to us. And God's desire isn't that any of us should suffer. His desire is that you would have his best. So he cries out to us. He cries out to our country. America, would you wake up? Would you see what you're doing? Would you please Will you not you will not enjoy the consequences for the decision that you are making? There's a window of opportunity for us to embrace change, and it is now. Because God loves us enough that if we don't embrace change now, he will allow us to walk through the consequences of our decisions. And what happened to the king, of course, is what happens to us. The Bible says that he was prosperous and that he was comfortable. He was content, so he felt like the consequences would never come. He had money, he had He had servants. He had this kingdom. How in the world could any of this happen? He saw no consequences in his future. In fact, one day goes by and nothing happens. Two days goes by. Three days, four days, months go by and nothing has happened. And so he felt like consequences would never come. And I believe that's where we are at. We are prosperous. We feel like things are okay. We hear messages like this and we shrug them off. And as we pick up the story back in Daniel, some things begin to set into motion. Daniel 4, 28-30 says, but all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, twelve months, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And the Bible says that at that moment... He went insane. He lost his ever-loving mind. He lost it all. And there's a few things I believe that we can learn from that. I believe contributed to his condition, to his insanity. There's a few steps we can take towards insanity in our own lives. And these are not things that happen to horrible people. They're things that happen to you and me every day. What the enemy tries to bring against us, we are susceptible to it. And culture, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but culture is crazy. The world is crazy. The world tells you that you are judgmental and that you are harsh, that you are full of no love and that that you are hateful and that they are full of love and they are amazing. They call right, wrong and wrong, right. The world has gone mad. I don't know if you're looking out at the world right now. But it is. And if we aren't careful, we will fall prey to being insane ourselves. There's a few symptoms we can look for to gauge ourselves. The first symptom is the perception of no consequences just like King Nebuchadnezzar, this one gets us all the time and has gotten me many times as well. This is exactly what happened to him. Because, look, we, we, we look at the Bible and we see that there was this 12-month period of time. And during that 12-month period of time, that time where God is delaying the consequences, giving us the opportunity to repent and to turn to him, during that time, he's got the enemy whispering in his ear and everybody around him, nah, that didn't really mean what he said it meant. That's not really going to happen. There's not really consequences for our friends. But let me tell you something, in that 12 months, see, that's God's grace, where God gives us what we don't deserve, and God's mercy, where he doesn't give us what we do deserve, and he delays on our behalf, hoping that we will change, be changed. But Nebuchadnezzar, he moved from that warning with no change because he had no fear of the consequences. And I believe that in, in the season of God's delay, of course, the enemy comes around and whispers in your ear, there's no consequences coming. God didn't mean it. Nothing's going to happen. It isn't coming. Look at their life. They're living better than you. They have a, they're having a lot more fun than you. Look at what they get to do. You're missing out. Those rules God put in place are just there to keep you from having fun. You can go there. You can drink that. You can smoke that. You can watch that. You can sleep with that. You can do whatever you want to. It's all fine. It doesn't matter. And I would tell you that this, this very line of thinking did a number on me when I was a kid. You know, I grew up in, in Christian school. And that doesn't mean that it was filled with Christian kids. It just means that that's where I went. It doesn't mean they were from a Christian house or that they were Christians themselves. And I grew up with the fear of God in my heart. Like, man, I believe that if I were to have sex with somebody, I was going to burst into flames and, like, die. You know what I mean? I felt like the flames of hell were constantly licking at my heels and, So I lived straight through high school. So I'm not going to participate in that kind of stuff. But I watched as my friends began to participate in some of these things. I I, I knew that they were having sex with each other. I knew that they were beginning to smoke drugs. And (coughs) they were drinking and they were inviting me into all their partying. They were breaking into people's homes and stealing other people's belongings and selling them. They had money to do fun things. And I'm sitting there waiting and I'm watching. I'm like, all right, any minute now they're all going to start smoking. They're going to burst into flames and and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And that really messed with my mind. And it's like, why? Why when the Bible talks about consequences? Why when it talks about, hey, there's a price to pay. The wages for sin is death. Why are these guys getting away with it? They're having a great time. They're enjoying themselves. And it messed with my head. I was confused. I said, where's the fire, Lord? And the devil's whispering in my ear the whole time, and at the same time, I'm getting persecuted by my friends because I'm not participating with what they were doing. Now, I'm not here to tell you that I was perfect in high school. I'm, I'm not here to tell you that at all. But I was following Jesus as best I could because I, I, I had the fear of God in my heart as a kid. And I was made fun of for my faith. And they're out having fun. And it's tempted, tempting for us to believe that, that maybe if I just cheat a little here, or maybe I don't file that, or maybe I don't, I don't show that, or I spend a little time over here, or maybe I just look at that. It's no big deal. Nobody really needs to know. There's never going to be consequences because of what you see in other people's lives. But the truth is that the book of Romans says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what you get paid or your reward, your paycheck, is death that ultimately you will experience death, death in your relationships, death in your finances, death in your home, death in your job. <coughs> when you live a life of sin, it messes with your entire life. It may not happen immediately, but consequences are coming. They will come, and the enemy doesn't want us to believe that. The second, the second condition that we can see, or the symptom that we can see, is the obsession with wealth and power. I would say that Nebuchadnezzar was drunk with the amount of wealth and power that he had. He said, look at all that I have built, all that I have been able to accomplish. In his pride, he exalted himself and said, look what was done by my hand. I am so amazing. And money is one of the strongest false gods that the enemy has ever set up. Because when you have a lot of money, you have this false sense of security. You believe that you won't need God. That you have everything you could need. <coughs> And there's no need for God if you have money. I want you to think about that. It's true. When the economy is going well, when, when the world is at peace and our world is at peace, where do we all go on the weekends? We go to the, the lake house. We go to the beach. We go see the mouse. Now, there's nothing wrong with vacations, and there's nothing wrong with having a, having a cabin or a house or nice things. I don't mean anything like that. But we take it easy because we have all the money that we need. But when the economy tanks... When there are people flying planes in the buildings, when there are demonic, possessed or oppressed kids that walk into schools and they shoot up a bunch of little kids, where do we all go? We all go to church because all of a sudden that money isn't buying us the safety and the security that it promises. All of a sudden we need God in our lives again. But we say, we don't want that Bible here. We don't want that scripture read. We don't want prayer in our schools. And, and then we can't figure out why we are living in a culture that reflects the choices that we've made. And it's time for us to realize that we need to take a step back. You can look at your bank account and feel pretty good about it. You can begin to think that you put in that over time and that it was your studying that got you the degree that you that you needed, that got you the interview that you wanted, that got you the job. And you can begin to think that it's everything that you have done, it's it's All the time that you have put into it. It's what your hands have done. The right deals that you have made. That you did it all. But I would say to you that God is the one who gave you the intelligence and the very brain (coughs) that you used to study. He gave you the breath that you breathe. And every opportunity of favor you have experienced is because of him. Everything comes from God. You have nothing in and of yourself. And not only do we need God's help, but we need to remember that we need God's help constantly in our lives. Constantly. And the temptation of power and wealth is what the devil tempted Jesus with. I'll give you all of this. Wealth, power, nations, if you will just bow down and worship me. The third sign is the motivation of personal praise. We want people to recognize us, to give us praise. We want people to exalt us. I really believe that that this, this generation is experiencing that and it's evidenced by the fact that Facebook is so incredibly popular, Instagram is so incredibly popular. We live on that. We make comments, we post pictures, and we want everybody to like them. We're looking for praise. And the temptation there is if you are looking for praise from people instead of looking to give it to God, we may be in danger of some consequences of some pride. We think we've know better than God that we've become so intelligent that we no longer need His values and standards, and we celebrate those decisions. We celebrate them. And the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar, when he reached this conclusion, verse thirty three says that same hour that judgment was fulfilled. When he said, "Look at my works, look at my hands," that moment he lost insanity. And God held it back for as long as possible. But in his love, he allowed this thing to take place. And the king went completely insane, driven from his home to live in the wilderness for seven years like an animal. And then something happened that his sanity was restored to him. Because as I said before, with God, there's always a way back. There's always a way back. There's a few keys in what happened, what shifted for him that I think we can learn from. And I'll be quick. We're closing. Kelly's already playing the music. You can tell the service is wrapping up. But Just hold on with me. There's three things we can do to make sure that we don't have to deal with the consequences of pride in our life. And, and you know, if you want to, you can turn me off right now. You can, you can stop listening to me. You can think about what you've got to do for the rest of your day. You can choose to walk through the pain and suffer the consequences of pain, of, of the consequences and, of living a life however you want to. You can listen to these stories and make adjustments so that you don't ever have to go through the consequences. So in Daniel 34, or 34-37, it says, After this time had passed, this is the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned. And I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the One who lives forever. His rule is everlasting. And His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to Him. This is a shift from where He was before. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Wow. There are three things I think that we can see here to help us that we need to understand. If you're in the place of insanity, if you've pushed God away and you didn't listen and you're walking through those consequences of the decisions that you made and your life is a mess, then maybe in this process you've cursed God and you're far away from Him. The reality is that all you have to do is look to Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar says, I looked with my eyes to the heaven, or I turned my eyes to the heaven. He looked. To Jesus. And what's amazing about God's grace is that no matter what we say to him, no matter how far away we are from him, no matter how much we attack him, no matter how much we defy him or how crazy we become, all it takes is a second of saying, God help me, I need you. That's all it takes. And in that moment, he rescues us from everything we have gotten ourselves into because he's just that good. Oh, I'm preaching better than you're shouting this morning and that's okay. You're just, it's the early service. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to deserve God's grace. And God cares so much that he'll hold back the consequences and give us time to return to him or he'll allow them if we are still pushing him away or even in the midst of our suffering. God will come and rescue us. We're just one prayer away from that. That's how good God is. And some of you are in that place and we are ready to take that first step. In just a moment, I'm going to give you that opportunity to take that step. To look to heaven and declare Jesus as Lord. The second thing we can do is to honor him with our whole life. Most of us are in this second category. We're like Nebuchadnezzar, right? We've experienced God from a distance. We would encourage people to worship God. We may even show up to church, but we have a form of godliness. But we deny the power of it in our own lives. We need to listen and learn the lessons of honoring God with our whole lives. The Bible says that there's a time coming when the church will have one foot... In heaven and one foot on the earth. And God talks about that day that he will spew us out of his mouth. In other words, he can't stand a church like that. That it makes him want to vomit. (laughs) And God says, don't be lukewarm. He can't stand it. The time is coming where we will have to choose that we are either going to be all in for Jesus or we're going to be all for the world. Let me say that there is no way that you can encounter the life-altering presence of God without having every area of your life being changed. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. If you think you've encountered God, but nothing has changed in your life, then you have not really encountered Him. If you're able to come here on Sunday morning and live like the world the rest of the week, then you don't have the same Holy Spirit speaking to your heart that I do. You cannot live that way. Because when God comes into a person's life, all things become new. And it doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you have changed you have changed. And that is what God has called us to live. Not a wishy-washy Christianity that can't decide what it stands for. We need to honor God with our whole lives. Jesus must be Lord of all or not Lord at all in our lives. So let's make the decision now. Let God have our whole lives. To be honest with you, it's a better life than the world is offering anyway. In the midst of the fire, you meet Jesus. When you're thrown into the lion's den, you get to come out safe and have an amazing story that changes people's lives. A nation gets led to revival. God is always around us. There's nothing to fear. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Man, and when Jesus is with you, what can't you go through? What what can't you go through? Life to the fullest is what he's promised us. The third thing that we can do is to live with humility. We must be sure that we recognize that humility is coming. Some of you say, Well, I won't bow my knee to this Jesus guy. Let me tell you something. There is a day coming. The Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we have the opportunity to humble ourselves and declare Jesus is Lord today or we will get to a point where he will humble us. And at that point it's too late. There will be a separation of people, those that have declared him as Lord in their lives, and those that are being forced to declare him because they see him in all of his glory and all of his splendor, and they tremble and fear at the sight of him. And they bow their knees, for truly he is Lord. And the Bible says there will be a separation to those that have said, Jesus, you are Lord on this earth. They will enter into his eternal rest, and the others will enter into eternal separation from God. Humility is coming. Will you decide to have it today? There is a price for waiting. You say, well, Aaron, how do we humble ourselves? Glad you asked. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and what? Pray. Prayer is a position, a posture of humility. It says, God, I need you. God, I acknowledge that I can't do this on my own. God, I need you to intervene. I need you to change me. I need you to be with me. I need your strength. I need you. It's a total reliance upon Him when we choose to pray. And He says, if you will humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their wicked ways, your wicked ways are just the way you believe that it ought to be, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. We need a revival in this country, folks, but it starts with us. It starts with you as an individual. It starts by us humbling ourselves through prayer, seeking His face, His will, His plan. And turning from our ways. We must do it first. So let's pray. Every head bowed. Every eyes closed. You know, some of you are at that place of insanity. In this moment, God has made it clear to you that it's time to look to heaven. For your sanity to be restored, you need Jesus in your life. He must be first. If you're ready to make that decision, I'm going to help you with that in just a moment. There's a simple prayer that I'd like you to pray with me at your seats. You know, I won't embarrass you, but I do want to connect you with Jesus today. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to make you come to the front. There's a simple prayer. I want you to pray. And if you want to be counted into this prayer, would you just shoot your hand up high? Come on, don't be ashamed. If you want to be included in that prayer, would you shoot your hand today? Thank you. appreciate those hands. It's awesome. Thank you. I want you to pray quietly in your heart. And God will hear you and answer. Just pray and mean it. Lord Jesus, I need you. Rescue me today from the chaos in my life. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of going my own way. I submit to you today. I want you to be my Lord. Take control. Help me to be the person that you've made me to be. I give you my whole life. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray for all of us. Lord, that we would not be a church that has a form of godliness. That denies your power. Father, Maybe we be passionate about you. That we honor you with all of our lives. Our relationships, our finances, our jobs, our thoughts. What we do in secret and in private by ourselves. Lord, help us set our hearts on fire for you today. That we may live with a passion for you. That we would not be that lukewarm church that has a foot in the world. And a foot in heaven. That we would be all in and all for you. Because you are all for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, I'd like to ask you, if you're here today, to take out your connection cards. I want to give you just a moment to reflect and to think.